together in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. And if not, there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. And you can turn to page 132 in those Bibles, page 132, if you'd like to follow along. If you're new with us, our habit as a church family is to simply work our way through chapter after chapter, book after book, seeking to see and hear what God has for us in His Word. And of late, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Today we want to grapple with a couple of of vital, timeless questions. There's two. I wonder if you'd try to log these in your mind as we work through the passage this morning. First question, is it possible to be restored to God after a massive failure? Is it possible to be restored to God after a massive failure? And if it is possible, number two, how? If it is possible, number two, how? To say that chapters 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel cover a dark period of time for Israel would be a colossal understatement. In just three chapters, the people of Israel felt the terrible cost of persistent rebellion against God. They broke covenant and reaped the consequences. God lifted His protection. So by the end of chapter 6, Israel has fallen to the external threat of the Philistines. And they had succumbed to the internal threats of ungodly leadership and widespread unfaithfulness to God. Under the deficient leadership of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, it seems the majority of Israelites in this time period had become people unconcerned with and indifferent to God. What a practical warning that is for us today. It's possible to experience spiritual vitality for a season, only to later give ourselves to spiritual apathy. To put that differently, having parents or grandparents who loved the Lord and walked with Him in no way guarantees the next generation will. Every generation must stoke the embers of spiritual vitality if love for God would be warmed again. So by the end of these three chapters, four, five, and six, tens of thousands of Israelites are dead. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas themselves have suffered shameful deaths. And the ark, that great symbol of God's kingship and His presence among the people, had been captured by people who did not love God. Yes, they returned it, but the Israelites didn't love God either. And so all of this built to that moment that John Mead shared with us last week from chapter 6, verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall He go up away from us? 
Israel had forsaken God's word. And in so doing, they plunged themselves into spiritual disillusionment. When the discipline of God comes upon an unrepentant people, there's often a longing for God to leave. Friend, have you ever wanted God to just go away? You ever wanted him to leave you alone? For people who know God's word, but remain steadfast against him, the desire is to just have God exit our lives. That's where 1 Samuel 6 ends. The people of God desiring the presence of God to be gone. Look with me at the first paragraph of chapter 7. And the men of Kerith Dream, this is a, a Jewish city, the men of Kerith Dream came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on a hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to the charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark was lodged at Kerith Dream a long time past, some 20 years. Essentially, here's what happened. The Philistines had captured the ark. It appeared that God himself had lost had been rendered impotent only for the ark to bring about judgment upon the Philistines. So they returned it back to the Israelites, but the Israelites too didn't want God either. So be it at the hand of the Philistines or when the ark was returned seven months later, Israel did not reconstitute themselves under God's word. They didn't return to loving him, following him, obeying him. They didn't respond to his great grace, but they hardened their own hearts. They refused to confess their sins and renew their promises to God. In fact, it seems that they were rather unconcerned with the question I opened with. Is it possible to be restored to God after massive failure? This seems to be the furthest thing from their minds. Instead, when the ark returned, they, they move it. They move it not back to Shiloh to rebuild that ancient temple and recommit themselves to worshiping God. They moved it not to another prominent Jewish city to start fresh. No, they, they moved it to this out-of-the-way, unimportant place. They sent the glory of God to the outskirts of life. Now, yes, they go through the motions of a, appointing a new priest to tend to the ark, but their hearts clearly aren't in it. It seems we could say they wanted God out of sight, out of mind. 
And in so doing, they plunge themselves into two decades of spiritual darkness. Following the example of Hophni and Phinehas, the Philistines turn from the worship of God to the worship of their own passions. Passions that promised life, but only brought increasing captivity. Friends, as you can tell from this first few minutes, this is going to be a heavy message. But hear this. There is no freedom outside of right relationship with God. No matter what we're promised, if we hear God's word and wish him away instead, life does not get better. Be it individuals or families or churches or denominations where God is not revered, people inevitably eventually fall into ruin. When God's grace and forgiveness are not received, when God's word is not obeyed, people don't flourish. They falter. They fail. May God keep this church from these haunting possibilities. Now eventually, however, the people do grow sorrowful. They begin to, in a word, lament. And it's at that precise moment God's word returns. Samuel re-enters the story. Perhaps if you've been with us the last several weeks, you've noticed that from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 7, verse 2, Samuel is unmentioned. He's not there, unnamed. But here, God's prophet returns with God's word for God's people. It is a good word. As Darian, one of our newest members, comes to read verse 2 through 17, would you think again about those two questions? Is it possible to be restored to a right relationship with God after massive failure? And if so, how? You read for us, brother. I will. <clears throat> and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, Are you returning to the Lord with all your heart? I'm sorry. Start that again. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths and they, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the, now when the, 
Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and the people of Israel heard it. They were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it, offered it as, a bur- as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and drew them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. Ebenezer, For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgad, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all, the, in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built, an, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Thanks, Darian. What, what exactly the prophet Samuel did during these 20 years? We simply don't know. But we do know what the Israelites did. It's incredibly clear. They dislodged God from the center of life. Instead of seeking by God's grace to live as distinct people, different from the non-Christians around them, they instead became exactly like them. They didn't listen to God. They didn't treasure God. They didn't trust God. Instead, as verse 4 says, they worshipped the Baals and the Asherah. Now, unless you're a nerd, that means absolutely nothing to you. So here I qualify as a nerd, so let me explain. Baal and Asherah are the primary gods or idols of the ancient Philistines. Baal was the, the god of the storms, the god of fertility. Ashereth was one of his female goddesses. And in this time period, it was believed that this god and this goddess were the source of both crops and fertility. They believed that life, whether it be from plants or from people, came through these gods. And the way to appease these gods was through ritual prostitution. 
And so the ancient Israelites gave themselves over to cultic sexual orgies. They became indistinct from those who knew nothing about God. They abandoned God and quite literally gave themselves up to unfaithfulness. To put it bluntly, the way another text says it, they became spiritual horrors. Brothers and sisters, perhaps we're tempted this morning to think that this kind of idolatry is a distinct ancient oddity that us modern people have evolved beyond. Our secular world, certainly in the West, knows nothing of bowing before an altar of Baal or Asherah. But make no mistake, idolatry is alive and well. There are still idols at every turn. We need not have physical statues for there to be things raised high above the Lord. You see, anything we prize above God, anything we look to for provision and protection and hope, these things are idols. We need no statue. We need no statues for there to be false worship. Think of the way in which money and success, education, having perfect kids, sexual behavior outside of a husband and wife, radical personal autonomy and individualism, even down to thinking we can choose our own gender. Busyness as a way of feeling significant. Pleasure and ease as the highest goal in life. These are all examples of modern idolatry that is everywhere around us. Idolatry is still a problem. It's not a problem out there problem in here. It's a problem in here. It's one of the reasons this chapter is so enormously helpful. See, as Samuel looked around and he saw the people finally, after two decades, beginning to mourn, he gave direction to their grief. He told them how to repent told them how to turn again to God. He gave them the answer to the question, is it possible for a people after massive failure to be made right with God again? It's right there in verse 3. He tells us that repentance, and by the way, this is consistent throughout the entire Bible, he tells us repentance involves four components. They're easy to see. They're right there plain on the text. Number one, he says repentance involves returning to the Lord. It's recognizing, God, I've been going this way, and this other thing has been first, but now I want to turn and go this way. God, I want you to be first. Number two, he said it's putting away idols. Number three, directing your heart 
to the Lord. And number four, committing to serve Him only. Brothers and sisters, when we've broken fellowship with God, it's never enough to merely say, I'm sorry, and then go on living the same way. That is not real repentance. Authentic sorrow for sin must, by definition, include a reorientation of life. It must involve this movement of turning from sin and turning to God, but then a following after Him. A setting aside of everything else. Think of it this way. The the human heart, now not that physical object in us, organ beating blood through our bodies, but the immaterial core of us, what what the scriptures call your heart. You could think of it as the, the steering wheel of your soul that which directs your affections, your heart. The human heart is thoroughly monogamous. Completely, actually. Friends, you will either give yourself completely to God or you will give yourself to idols. You cannot do both. It's one or the other. By God's grace and in God's power, you'll be faithful to the Lord or you will veer off course seeking after other gods. Now, just like a spouse who's committed adultery would expect their husband or wife to say, I'm sorry, and to stop the affair if there would be reconciliation, God expects his people to say, I'm sorry, and to stop the idolatry. Brothers and sisters, our hearts will know only one lover at a time. This is why true repentance in the words of Samuel and in every other prophet in the Bible, true repentance is always connected with changing behavior. Now, verse 7, in chapter 7, Israel finally repented. It's easy for us to jump from verse 2 to verse 3 and just think of that as a moment. But remember, this is the span of 20 years. That's longer than a bunch of us have been alive. Two decades. of idolatry. But now they finally stopped sleeping around on God. They have confessed their unfaithfulness. They've made real changes. They've gotten rid of the idols. They've stopped going to the spiritual brothels. They have renewed the love of God. Today, with our modern sensibilities, we, again, don't find ourselves bowing down before idols. And yet, we do find ourselves in the same struggle. So the changed behavior doesn't sound like smashing idols. It sounds more like this. We might say we, we texted the other woman 
and ended the relationship. We resolved to quit using computers alone at night because we just can't stand the strength of the temptation. They moved out of their boyfriend's apartment. They turned from affirming any sexual relationship outside of marriage. They quit being slothful and sitting around and instead began to give themselves to work. They stopped nurturing grudges and started forgiving. They quit being satisfied with shattered relationships and began to repair them. They turned from a desire for wealth to a desire to live for the glory of God. They gave up the fear of man in order to revere God. This this kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle of acknowledging sin, repenting of it, changing behavior, and then walking day by day in the love of God. Friends, this is normal Christianity. These aren't things we move beyond. You don't Start the Christian life needing to confess sin and renew commitment to God and then move on to more important, more advanced things. This isn't the ABCs of Christianity. This is the A to Z. This is it. If we would follow after Jesus, we must moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, Turn from sin. Turn to God. This has always been the biblical response to the hearing of God's word. There is nothing more important. Now as your eyes glance down the chapter to verse 5, you'll, you'll see that as repentance began to take root, Samuel did something that's not abundantly clear to us, but it would have been clear to the, to the followers then. It says that he called all Israel, so all the people to gather at a town called Mitzvah. And what that was, was a corporate gathering to renew their promises to God, to, to state together that they would again be faithful to him. You might think of it as a, a couple that's been married 30 years renewing their vows. This is the people of God gathering back together because you see, sin is never an individual thing. It always has a corporate effect. And so the people gathered together to together have Samuel offer a sacrifice on their behalf, have Samuel pray that they might confess their sin and walk faithfully with God. Incidentally, church, that's what we do every Sunday morning when we get together. We start yet another week by hearing God's word, by singing God's word, by praying God's word, by receiving again the grace of God and renewing our commitment to him together. 
Now, you'll notice as you skim down through that paragraph, starting in verse 5, that something incredibly typical happened. In that precise moment, as they gathered, the Philistines chose to mount another attack. Brothers and sisters, isn't that how this works? When you finally turn from sin and turn back to God, it seems the trials, the difficulties, the temptations intensify. Of course they do. This is because the genuineness of our commitment to God is always tested by the trials of life. And it was this way this day for the Israelites. But this time, Israel's response is categorically different. Sometime this week, you might get together with another brother or sister in Christ and take 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 1 Samuel chapter 7. Look at them side by side. And what you'll see is that everything they did wrong in chapter 4 becomes by grace everything they do right. In chapter 7. And so all the hardships that came down on the Israelites in chapter 4 are diabolically different than the blessing they received in chapter 7. It's really cool. Now, instead of arrogantly using the ark as though it were a rabbit's foot, they simply cast themselves on the mercy of God. This time, in chapter 7, they knew they were 100% dependent on God. They knew they could not defeat their enemies. They knew of their inability. They acknowledged their sin and relied on God to intervene. This time, in chapter 7, particularly look at verse 8, they pleaded with Samuel to intercede. They asked God for the help of a leader. For they knew that God was their only hope. And unlike the days of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, this time, this time, they had godly leader who would stand for them. Now look closely with me at verse 10, would you? And somebody shout out the first word you see. As. As. The passage is explicitly clear that as Samuel was offering this sacrifice. As an animal was dying in place of the Israelites, in the precise moment at the very height of their worship of him and renewal of their commitment, in that precise moment, the Philistines began to surround the Israelites. Now remember what had happened to them the last time. 30,000 fellow Israelites died 
the fear is palpable. But they didn't stop the sacrifice. They didn't pick up their swords. They didn't run the other way. They continued engaged in the worship of God, asking God to intervene. It's a beautiful picture. And God, in his mercy, chose to accept the death of that sacrifice in place of the death of the Israelites. And then he miraculously intervened for them. As foretold so clearly in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, the Lord thundered against those who persist in their sin. Friends, make no mistake. This story shows us that those who do not turn from sin, who do not turn to God, will meet a sure and severe end. And so the Philistines, the enemies of God, were defeated and Israel was renewed. The point of this chapter is that God rescues His repentant people through His chosen servant. Now look down to verse 12. Samuel sets up a memorial, a stone, to remember this event. He calls it Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of help. If you were here with us a few weeks ago, you may remember that back in chapter 4, at the last battle with the Philistines, the one where tens of thousands of people died, the city where that battle was held was called Ebenezer. Here, Samuel is setting up an altar that the people might remember. At this time, they didn't lose. This time, by God's grace, they were victorious. God had helped his people. God rescued the Israelites from certain defeat. In grace, God accepted their repentance and renewed his power and presence among them. He helped his people. 1 Samuel 7 closes by declaring a wonderful, lengthy period of peace. This is, in fact, the high point in the entire period of the judges. The best moment for Israel in Samuel's life. God's glory returned. The people thrived under Samuel. They were safe within and without. Security and stability marked their days as they continued to walk in a lifestyle of hearing God's word, responding with repentance, renewing their commitment to him afresh and anew every day, and enjoying the love of God and relationships with each other. They lived as God's people under God's blessing.
Now think back with me, if you would, to the opening couple of questions I asked. Number one, is it possible to be restored to God after massive failure? 1 Samuel chapter 7 unequivocally says the answer is yes. Yes! You can be restored to right relationship with God. We can be restored to right relationship with God, irrespective of how far we've wandered. Now for the second question. How? How can we be restored? How can sinful people be made right again with a sinless God? Well, friend, whatever you've done, and church, whatever we have done, the Word of God declares that there is forgiveness from God and a restored relationship to God if we will but repent and set our hearts on Him alone. But that's not exactly answering the question. You see, a restored relationship with God is not ultimately dependent upon what we do, but upon what God does. It's not a blessing we merit, but a gift we receive. You hear the difference? For a holy God to rescue an unholy people, there must be something else. There must be a mediator. 1 Samuel chapter 7 would not be in the Bible were it not for Samuel. There would have been a different outcome. Samuel is the key to this story. And a mediator is the key to our story. I hope by now, those of you who know the biblical story are exploding inside as you grasp what this chapter is saying. Friend, if you need an Old Testament picture of salvation in order to understand the New Testament picture, spiritual reality of a crucified and risen king, this is it. Just hear this out. A Helpless people responded to God's call for repentance, and an intercessor asked God for mercy as a sacrifice was being offered. In God's tremendous wisdom, this is one of the clearest prefiguring of the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ himself. What Samuel was as a shadow Jesus is in substance. Hebrews chapter 7 says it this way. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, this is Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hallelujah. We have a better intercessor than Samuel. We have Jesus who lives forever. Friend, whether you've been a Christian a while, And you have come to recognize this morning that you have wandered away. You have given yourself to Baal and Ashereth. Whether you're somebody who's never trusted Christ in the first place, the offer of the gospel is a right relationship with God based not on you, but on Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus is right now interceding. Won't you turn from sin? and turn to him. Let's pray. Before I pray for us, would you pray for yourself? Father, we are a people that certainly to one degree or another and certainly in ways different from the Israelites and at times perhaps different from each other. We are nonetheless people who battle with the worship of other gods. We place our trust and allegiance in things and people that cannot possibly stand up under that weight. And that is why we are so encouraged this morning to hear that it is possible to be restored to a right relationship with God after these failures. And it's possible because there is a mediator, Jesus Christ. I pray that the full weight of conviction we ought to feel would fall even now. And that that weight would then be lifted by the Spirit as your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy is felt fresh and new. Father, we've looked 
far too much and lived far too like those around us who do not know you. And today, together, we gather not at mitzvah, but here at Church on Mill to claim your forgiveness, to praise our mediator, and to stand in victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.